I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, and I'll be your host for this series. In the first video of our series, we saw that the Battle of Armageddon will not be a single battle at all. Rather, it will be the gathering place for the Antichrist and his global army to mobilize in preparation for a campaign of battles, seeking to destroy the nation of Israel and the entire Jewish race. By doing this, to prevent the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth to begin his thousand-year millennial rule. Now, in our second video of our series, we looked at Satan's motives for deciding that the time had come after three and a half years of the tribulation to break the covenant that the Antichrist made with Israel, to indwell the Antichrist, and to use him to gather a multi-nation army at Armageddon. Now that was stage one of the campaign of Armageddon. In our next video of our series, we saw that while the Antichrist is preparing his armies over at Armageddon, God the Father will destroy the Antichrist's rebuilt capital city of Babylon in one hour. You may recall that during the tribulation, Babylon will represent the culmination of Satan's ongoing plan for global government and worship that began way back at Babel. It was there that Satan introduced the world's first false religion in defiance of God, his people, and his plan for history. From that day until the tribulation, Satan's evil plan has been to attack God and to derail his plan for a kingdom for his son by completely destroying the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and all believers through a global government and religion. Now, during the seven-year tribulation, a rebuilt Babylon will become the world center for commerce, according to Zechariah chapter 5. Speaking prophetically in, of the city Babylon, he says in verse 6, And I said, What is it? And he said, This is a ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, This is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mount thereof. Now, skipping to verse 10, he explains the symbol of this Ephath as being the future city of Babylon. In verse 10, Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the Ephath? And he said unto me, To build it an house in the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Here in the midst of this ephah, there's a woman that is called wickedness. 
Now, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, wickedness, is translated by the Septuagint. Now, that's an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It is translated with the Greek word anomia, meaning without law or lawlessness. We find that the Holy Spirit uses the same Greek word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, speaking of the wicked one, the anomia, the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the spirit of his mouth. Now, in Zechariah 5, the woman pictures evil and wickedness in its highest form, governmentally, and in the business world of the tribulation. Clearly, this is the same woman of Revelation 17, where the woman is seated upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. That's verse 3. Her name on her forehead is Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, in verse 5. Clearly, the woman of Zechariah 5 and of Revelation 17, they are the same and all direct us to the final global empire of Satan and the final great political commercial world of the future rebuilt Babylon of Revelation 18. Now, Jeremiah the prophet foretells Babylon's final destruction by God, where God speaks in Jeremiah 51. Looking at verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon and against them that dwell in the midst of them that rise up against me a destroying wind. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her. Take balm for her pain. If so, she may be healed. And I will render under Babylon and to all the inhabitants of Chaldea all their evil, notice, that they have done in Zion in your sight, saith the Lord. In verse 25, Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyeth all the earth, and I will stretch out mine hand upon thee, and roll thee down from the rocks, and will make thee a burnt mountain. That's a flat mountain. And they shall not take of thee a stone for a corner, nor a stone for foundations, but thou shalt be desolate forever, saith the Lord. When God's vengeance upon this final Babylon is finished, it will become uninhabitable, never to be rebuilt. Thus, at this point in the campaign of Armageddon, stage one was the gathering of the global armies of the Antichrist on the plain of Armageddon. Stage two was God's destruction of the Antichrist's capital city, Babylon. And now we begin our study of stage three of the campaign of Armageddon, where we would typically expect the Antichrist to retreat to rebuild Babylon. <laughs> but rather, we will now see him advance to siege and occupy Jerusalem. The Antichrist's reaction to God destroying his capital city of Babylon is to advance his armies south to 
toward Jerusalem, God's city where Christ will reign in the millennium. This begins stage three of the campaign of Armageddon. Stage three brings the spiritual battle between Satan and God's people Israel into full focus. It is now centered upon God's special city of Jerusalem. The outcome of these battles will determine who rules the earthly kingdom, Satan or the Lord Jesus Christ. With the coming battle for Jerusalem and the subsequent attack upon the remnant over in Basra at Petra, the stage is set for the final conflict where the Lord Jesus Christ will be victorious as he descends to the earth to take possession of his earthly kingdom. Just as Babylon symbolizes the epitome of Satan's rule of the earth and its kingdom, so too Jerusalem bears a similar significance with respect to God's rule of the earth and its kingdoms. But while Babylon was Satan's symbol of rebellion against God, it was still only a means and not the essence of that rebellion. Thus, Satan cannot allow Babylon to divert him from his prime objective. The destruction of Babylon becomes insignificant in terms of where he's headed. That is, the destruction of God's people at Jerusalem. This objective to destroy Jerusalem and its people will have taken center stage beginning with Satan's motivating the Antichrist to break his covenant with Israel by ending worship and sacrifices at the temple site in Jerusalem. He did that back at the midpoint of the tribulation. Three and a half years later, he will attack Jerusalem. For God's people, that point was when God commanded his Jewish believers to flee Judea and to follow his leading to a place prepared for them in Matthew 24, verse 15. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 is an excellent summary of that time, beginning in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman. Now remember, in this passage, the woman is a symbol for the nation of Israel, which brought forth the man-child, that's Jesus Christ. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Remember, that's three and a half years. From the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have obeyed the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel's history has had many moments of danger that threatened her survival as a nation, but this will be the gravest threat ever. This event will complete, if you will, a set of historical bookends that began with Israel's exodus out of Egypt 
And the last bookend will end at God's hiding place in the wilderness. Israel's first journey freed her from the bondage of Egyptian slavery. Israel's last journey will free her from its national sins and permanently restore her covenant relationship to her God. In the first journey, God used the Shekinah glory to lead Israel in the wilderness as it followed God's chosen leader, Moses. In the last journey, God will again use the Shekinah glory to lead Israel as it follows God's chosen leader, the returning Lord Jesus Christ. Just as in that first journey, when trapped between the Egyptians and the sea, God delivered her by stopping the sea. In her last journey, God again will deliver her from the apparent trap of the Antichrist's army and Satan's seas by the earth swallowing the water. Exodus 19 in verse 4 summarizes that first journey's deliverance. Exodus 19 verse 4. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Isaiah also in verse chapter 40, verse 31, summarizes the final journey deliverance in a very similar way. For we read, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run, not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We will see many more parallels in these two journeys as we continue our studies here of the campaign of Armageddon. Now, notice, God has not forgotten his people Israel. Through Isaiah, he assures them that in that day, he is God their protector. For again, in Isaiah chapter 40, looking at verse 1, he says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. When the time of receiving his wrath for her sins has been completed, national Israel will respond properly and turn to him at the hiding place. And then we read, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. That's Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5. Since the end of this national journey will mark the end or consummation of God's wrath designed to reprimand and refine Israel prior to their entry into the millennial promised land, we need to expand our understanding of God's wrath during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Any cursory reading of the events of the tribulation should cause us to thank the Lord to be part of the body of believers of the church age, and as such, we will be removed from the earth before the tribulation. Since we will not experience the tribulation, it's important for us, 
who will rule and reign with him in the millennium, to understand what are God's four primary reasons for his wrath during the tribulation and why the church need not be present. God's first reason for the tribulation is to demonstrate God's justice and his wrath on the ungodly in a tangible and very visible way. Just as Adam represented all mankind in his single act of rebellion, now the nations of the earth will represent all the past nations and humanity of history that rejected God and rejected his people. In Romans chapter 9, verse 22, it tells us, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? John speaks of those rejecting the Jews and their God in Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. And we read, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, the chief captains, and the mighty men, every bondman and every free man, hid himself from the dens in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's the wrath of the Lamb, Christ. For the great day of wrath is come. As we saw in our previous video, God's wrath will be demonstrated when he destroys the city of Babylon, representing the nations and the false supra-religion in only one hour. Now in Revelation 18, in verses 9, 10, 20, and 23, we read, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for one hour is thy judgment come. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Now at the end of verse 23, For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. Further, God's wrath will be demonstrated when he destroys the powers of the rebellious angels. For we read, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones, that's angels, that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. That's Isaiah chapter 24 and verse 21. Thus God's first reason for the tribulation is to demonstrate God's justice and wrath on the ungodly in a tangible and visible way. God's second reason for the tribulation is to begin to bring to an end the wickedness and evil upon the earth. We read, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. That's Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9. You see, the time has come to deal with the wickedness of humanity that he patiently endured since the garden. God's third reason for the tribulation is to demonstrate God's grace even during the time of his wrath. During the tribulation, all will see that even though God is pouring out his wrath upon the earth, 
there is still time to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, John tells us that many will be saved. For he says, A great multitude which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto them, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 17. Now, while the tribulation will be the worst time to be on the earth, it is still a time of grace to all who will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. He, who was a substitute lamb that paid for their sins by the shedding of his blood on the cross. But never forget, it was his resurrection that demonstrated that the wages of our sins were paid for by his death. And the debt was paid, paid in full, for because he lives, so can we. Now, Isaiah tells us in chapter 53 and verses 4 through 6, and we'll skip to verse 11. So beginning in verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now he, God the Father, shall see of the travail of his soul, shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he, Jesus Christ, shall bear their iniquities. The fourth reason for the tribulation is to break the power of the holy people of Israel, turning them back to him. Thus, as one Bible teacher taught, Thus, this time of unprecedented distress will be the very instrument that God will use to bring the Jewish remnant to faith. End quote. That faith is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah, writing again in chapter 12 this time, verses 2 through 6, tells us that in that day shall national Israel cry out, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye dry, draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. 
the events of the tribulation, particularly the next two stages of the campaign, will bring Israel to the point of desperation. So they will cry out to God in repentance, turning to the Lord for deliverance from their enemies and for salvation. For Daniel speaks of this in chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, where he starts out, When he shall have accomplished to scatter, to scatter means to break down or humble, the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Hosea, speaking for God in Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15, and in chapter 6 verse 1 says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. That's God leaving and will return when they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction they shall seek me early. Come, let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. That's Hosea again, chapter 5, verses 15, and Hosea 6, verse 1. Thus for Israel, the journey will end with complete deliverance by God in that day. This fourth reason for the tribulation is so that Israel will finally understand what God has been teaching them for centuries upon centuries. They will see that it was all for their own good and that God's anger was for the purpose of bringing them to repentance and full surrender to him as their God. It will be this acknowledgement that brings Jesus Christ back to the earth to restore his kingdom on earth. So understanding God's purposes of the tribulation will help us to understand now the third stage of the campaign as we examine it more closely. With the third stage of the campaign, God begins the final process to bring his people to desperation and to seek him, the fourth reason for the tribulation. At this point, the Antichrist takes his military forces assembled at Armageddon and advances upon the city of Jerusalem, God's capital city. Zechariah chapter 12 through 14 are excellent summaries of this third stage. You'll want to sit down and calmly read chapters 12 through 14. Now, beginning in chapter 12, in verse 1, we read, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Verse 3. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against them. Notice in this passage in Zechariah 12, the phrase, in that day. This is a prophetic flag. and When you see it, it indicates speaking of the final events of the ages-long journey that will bring about national Israel's reconciliation with her God. So look for in that day. 
Now, in order to understand why Jerusalem will become a burden stone, some stone for all people, we need to look at a brief review of the history of this crucial city in world history and see that God chose this city for his purposes for Israel. The first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible is in Genesis 14 and verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he, now that's Abram, gaveth him tithes of all. Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. He's a very unique man, not only in the Bible, but in the world. For he was both a king and a priest. The only other mention of him in the entire Old Testament is found in Psalm 110, verse 4, where we read, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now in the New Testament, Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 17, 7, verse 17, and verse 21. From these passages, we conclude that Melchizedek is an Old Testament preview or prefigurement of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe Melchizedek was a real man. He was not the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he is a prefigurement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Helps us to understand more about the Lord. Now this was confirmed that this is true by the Lord Jesus Christ back in Matthew chapter 22 and verses 43 and 44. There, Matthew attributes, or the Lord attributes this psalm to David, declares that it is speaking of himself. For in verse 43, he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Melchizedek's priesthood is universal. It's not limited to a particular nation, race, or family line. And his kingship was not inherited, nor was it passed on, as suggested by the scriptures. And that's the reason why there is no genealogy given of Melchizedek. So too, Christ's priesthood is for all peoples of the earth, and his rule will be over all all the earth in the millennium. Now, our next major major picture of Jerusalem comes in Genesis 22. Here Abraham was asked to offer his son as a sacrifice to the Lord upon a mountain that God chose in the land of Moriah, showing total trust and obedience in the Lord. Abraham's son Isaac was spared by a substitute ram in the stead of his son. As we will shortly see, this location is where God will ultimately choose to place his temple, in Jerusalem. From this early picture at Jerusalem, we see another preview of our Lord, when his father offered him as the substitute lamb for all who would trust in him for their salvation. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11, Moses tells us that God will choose the place where burnt offerings and sacrifices shall be offered to him. He says, Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. Significantly, this same verse indicates that the location will be where God's name will dwell. In other words, the name Jerusalem will be associated with God. Thus, the chosen spot is God's unique place on the earth to represent the true God by his name, the possessor of heaven and earth. The choosing of a specific spot waited from Moses' day until King David began to rule over Israel. Thus, in 2 Samuel 24, the king, David, had sinned against the Lord. Remember, he numbered the people. Now, that was preparing for war again. God did not approve of this numbering, and he gave David three choices of chastisement, Three choices, one, two, three, of how God should chastise David for what he had done. Rarely does David act selfishly in the scriptures, but he did here. He chose the third chastisement, which would not directly affect him, but others. David chose three days of pestilence in the land. During those three days, 70,000 men died as the pestilence went from the south of Dan north until just outside of Jerusalem, according to verse 16. As the plague approached Jerusalem, God stays the death angel, stopping precisely, according to the scriptures, at the threshing place of Aronah, also called Ornan, the Jebusite. Thereupon, David sets up an altar to the Lord on this site in Jerusalem. With the millennial rule of the Lord Jesus Christ as priest-king in Jerusalem, we will see another symbolic bookend matching Salem's priest-king Melchizedek with the coming of the Lord to be priest-king in Jerusalem. During David's rule, God instructs David that he shall not build God's temple, but rather David's son, King Solomon, shall build it upon the Mount of Moriah in Jerusalem, at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Putting it together, we see that this is the exact same site where Abraham offered Isaac, when King David prayed and the plague stopped, and when Solomon built the temple of the Lord, the place for God's name to dwell. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon tells us that God did choose that spot. For he says in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and have chosen David to be my people. At 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Verse 6. Thus Jerusalem is more than just the city of the Jews or the center of the nation of Israel. 
the temple site is the spot where God's name is to dwell and he is to be represented by it. This was God's chosen spot and his capital city upon the earth. It was also to represent God's blessing upon Israel during Israel's obedience. And if they were not in possession of the city, it was to be God's sign of his displeasure at Israel's disobedience to him. Now, many years after Solomon's dedication, King Sennacherib came down to conquer Israel. At that time, God allowed the king to take many of Israel's cities during this time of Israel's existence. But when Sennacherib approached Jerusalem, God miraculously intervened, protected the city, and kept Sennacherib from taking it as his captive. You'll read about that in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19 and Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. Yet, when Israel finally turned away from their covenant obedience to God and turned God's temple into a place of false worship, God removed his blessing and his glory, that's his presence, from the temple. He allowed Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar to come down and destroy the city of Jerusalem. Now, throughout the history of Jerusalem, there have been many sieges upon it. For example, Ptolemy Soter took Jerusalem in about 315 B.C. Antiochus the Great took the city in 2003 B.C. The Egyptian Scopus in 199 B.C and Antiochus Epiphanes in 170 B.C., and, of course, the Romans in 70 A.D., all illustrations that Israel was not in God's blessing. But unlike these previous attacks upon Jerusalem, this attack of the Antichrist will be an international attack to serve to turn national Israel by God permanently back to her God and to begin the Lord Jesus Christ return to them so the millennium will begin. From this history, we can see that the city is a clear symbol of the spiritual state of natural Israel and its covenant relationship to her God. Satan knows this, and he must seek to destroy the city that symbolizes all that God is to national Israel and to the world. Further, Satan knows history. He has a limited knowledge of the future, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. So too, he must know of the importance to God of this city of Jerusalem. Thus, his first act in this culmination was to stop the temple worship on Mount Moriah and Jerusalem at the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, Jerusalem becomes the objective to destroy the city where Jesus Christ is to reign. The capture of Jerusalem by the Antichrist will be a very clear message to Jewish believers that the only possibility of national survival and deliverance depends upon their turning to the true Messiah, a recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Messiah. Stage 3 brings the time of Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2, into effect. And we read, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and they spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. 
for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravaged and half of the city will go into captivity. The residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. That's Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2, telling of the Antichrist's capture of Jerusalem. His forces will swoop down to Jerusalem, and once again the city will fall completely into Gentile control, despite significant resistance by the Jewish people. You see, the time of the Gentiles has not yet ended. Even in this defeat, God offers a promise of deliverance to the city in verse 4 of Zechariah 14. And we read, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove to the north, half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Until that day, Jerusalem will be given time by the Lord for them to absorb what has happened and to realize that trusting in their own strength will fail. Despite the Jewish resistance, one half of the city will be taken into slavery. The remaining will be under Gentile control in the city. The losses on both sides will be enormous, but the Antichrist forces will prevail, and Jerusalem will fall until the Messiah, Jesus Christ, personally brings his armies to rescue Jerusalem. I believe God has allowed this to happen, to demonstrate that until the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem cry out to him for deliverance, their own efforts, their own armies, no matter how powerful, cannot protect them. Remember Hosea 5, verse 15, and chapter 6, verse 1, which we read earlier. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction they will seek me early. Come, let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. With the fall of Jerusalem, the campaign's third stage will come to an end. With all the Jews of Jerusalem and Judea under complete control and ready for annihilation, those Jews in Petra will be protected by God, for they will be true, obedient, believing Jews. Satan will now have to turn his attention to try to destroy that obedient remnant at Basra in Petra. Please join me when we look at that next video on the study of the fourth stage of Armageddon, the siege of Petra. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily, and I'll either see you here or in the air.